tough holiday season, just remember these careful words of wisdom. You're gonna have a good time. You're gonna be partying and you're gonna be celebrating, but don't ever forget for one second that you can't make that one big deadly mistake. Just remember one thing, don't drink and drive. symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. Turn it on and rip the knob off. And welcome back to the Wrestling Memory Grenade, now at episode 112. And I am your host, Ray Russell, and happy holidays. Merry Christmas to all. Hope you guys are enjoying you and yours, your family, your friends, having a safe, healthy, and happy holiday season. And guys, this week, it is now time for the Royal Rumble. Yes, indeed. This week here on the Grenade, we're going to pick apart and analyze the very first ever, the inaugural televised Royal Rumble event going all the way back to the USA Network, January 24th in 1988. Lots of fun to be had here this week, but before we get into that, just a quick and friendly reminder that you guys can listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade as well as sister shows like the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast where we talk the territories Right now, three projects going on over at Regional Wrestling. It's 1981 in Georgia Championship Wrestling with guest Jamie Ward, 1986 in Bill Watts' UWF with co-host Roman Gomez, and now it's Memphis. Yes, indeed, the Memphis Wrestling Territory in 1985 with guests like Steve Crawford and most recently, Gene Jackson. And a special shout-out also to Luke Jennings and his Memphis Continental Wrestling cast. Guys, Luke right now covering the year of 1984 in the Memphis Territory. Be sure to check that out, and you guys can listen to all of those shows and more as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And be sure to follow me on social media, guys, for all the latest goings on here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. Plus, I'm constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. And you guys can follow me over at X, formerly Twitter. You can follow me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And hey, while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade, where I am uploading new footage all the time. And of course, now would be a fantabulous time to become a WrestleCopia patron. And if you don't know by now, guys, I'm talking about that $5 all-access tier over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, where you get all sorts of gifts for just five bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes for the Wrestling Memory Grenade, the Regional Wrestling Podcast, 
and the Monday Warfare program as well. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. From there, it's remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. And of course, our Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription. Cancel any time. Please, show your support. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like all the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills to keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network up and running for the months and the years to come. And now with all of that out of the way, I said it at the top of the program, I'll say it again here right now, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for the Royal Rumble! It is now time for the Royal Rumble. And as we get going here this week, of course, everybody knows the first ever Royal Rumble pay-per-view took place in 1989. However, when we cover the 1987 WWF project, we know back in the fall, they did a little dry run here of the Royal Rumble matchup itself in the St. Louis market. And fast forward just a few months later, here we are live on the USA Network. It is indeed the first ever Royal Rumble event. And just a quick synopsis to what brought us here today. You have to go back and look at things as part of the plan to monopolize the wrestling industry. The World Wrestling Federation had just ran their first ever Survivor Series pay-per-view on Thanksgiving, head-to-head with the NWA's Starcade event. Now, Vince would continue the attack here by running a free TV special event on the USA Network up against the NWA's Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view. Shameless, Vince. And this will actually lead to the creation of Clash of the Champions upcoming, which will air against WrestleMania 4. Anywho, that's another story another day. But back to the Rumble. The idea of the match itself was thought up by the legendary wrestler, booker, and finish man, Pat Patterson. Now, story goes, Pat, he proposed the idea to Vince McMahon back in 1987. And Vince, reportedly, he hated it, said it would fail miserably. Nobody could catch on or follow the concept. So as I stated, to test the waters, they had that little dry run back in St. Louis. The winner of the first ever Royal Rumble technically was the one-man gang on said house show. But after this special event slot was given to the World Wrestling Federation by the USA Network, Patterson again pitched the idea of the Rumble match. Vince McMahon had his doubts, but There was one Dick Ebersol, you may know the name, very involved in the NBC's Saturday night's main event, very much so the producer of those shows. And the story goes, Dick, he didn't have a lot going on around this point in time, so he offered to help out with his big event any way he could. And when Pat Patterson pitched the idea of the Royal Rumble match to Ebersol, he thought the idea would build plenty of intrigue. Who was next? Who drew what number? the fans counting down to the next entrance, the countless possibilities of talent we see in the ring, the luck of the draw meant anybody could potentially win this thing. Wow, just amazing. Ebersol, he knew more than McMahon about good TV. Well, he did oversee the entire NBC. And again, Ebersol having nothing going on around this time, 
he was right up in the mix backstage at this event. And we've had a lot of fun with it here in the early part of 1988. Obviously, the name was batted around a little heading into the new year. We've heard Mean Gene repeatedly refer to this event as the Rumble Royal before they finally get it right, heading into the final week of TV leading in. Now, from the very beginning, we've heard Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan refer to it as the Royal Rumble. A lot of the wrestlers also referring to it as the Royal Rumble. We've even heard Craig DeGeorge call it that big event coming up on Sunday night. So obviously they weren't set on the name 100%. And those promos with Gene would never air in today's world, or even a year or two after this, for that matter. So not to confuse anyone, this was never referred to as the Rumble Royal. In fact, if you go back and look at those St. Louis ads in the fall of 87, it was even called the Royal Rumble then. Of course, the word Royal taken from the Battle Royal. And well, Rumble just sounds good. And yes, with Pat Patterson's pitch and Dick Ebersol seeing the possibilities, Vince McMahon throws his hands up and says, hey, do what you want with this event. Call it what you want. Do what you want with that matchup. Because the big thing here for McMahon is that Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giants storyline, which we'll get into in a little bit as well. And quite frankly, the Rumble Royal just doesn't roll off your tongue the same way. So thank God they settled on the Royal Rumble, the name that we've all come to know and love over the years. As we get rolling here, guys, we head back in time to January 24th, 1988, the initial Royal Rumble event here on television at Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. The WWF announcing a sellout crowd of 20,000, reportedly actually more like 16,200, but who's counting? And if you guys recall, it was earlier this month that we were told on primetime that it was originally slated to be Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan doing commentary here for this show. Then this past Monday on primetime, Bobby hits Gorilla with a last minute conundrum as the brain announces that the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, is paying for Heenan a vacation in Barbados. So Bobby Heenan alerting Gorilla just six days out that he will not be able to make the Royal Rumble event. Enter Jesse the Body Ventura as Gorilla made those phone calls throughout primetime. You guys heard the sound bites. Maybe you went back and watched it on the Peacock, but Gorilla finally reaching Jesse Ventura, who had an off day from making movies, and the body agreed to be part of the Royal Rumble event. So then it went from Gorilla and Bobby Heenan to Gorilla and Jesse Ventura. But even more recently, at some point during the week of the Royal Rumble here, sadly, Gorilla Monsoon would suffer a heart attack, albeit a mild one, but still a heart attack nonetheless. And it put Monsoon on the shelf for a little bit here at the early part of 1988. So we'll see him miss a prime time or two wrestling challenge. He's even going to skip, obviously, the following night from the Rumble, the Madison Square Garden card, going to be replaced by Vince McMahon there. So a speedy recovery to you, Gorilla, here in 1988. Hope to see you back very soon. And now in Monsoon's place here on the Rumble is the owner himself talking about Vince McMahon hosting alongside Jesse Ventura. So it kind of gives us that Saturday night's main event type feel on commentary here for this one. Though I'm very used to that big fight feel, the pay-per-view feel of Gorilla and the body, I understand why Monsoon, unfortunately, is not here as his health issues begin. But before we get rolling, don't forget, guys, tonight it's the official contract signing between Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan for the WWF World Title Match, scheduled to take place February 5, live on NBC, plus four big matches tonight, including the first-ever televised 
Royal Rumble match. But for right now, we kick it all off. We hear that stripper music playing in the background of one ravishing Rick Rude. As the show opens, Vince McMahon running down the card, and it's straight to the ring for our first matchup, featuring ravishing Rick Rude taking on Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And remember, Bobby Heenan on quote-unquote vacation here in Barbados, which is kind of odd booking since both Rick Rude and his Islanders have matches here tonight, plus the King Harley race involved in the Royal Rumble itself. You'd also like to think that Heenan would be here to support the eighth wonder of the world. Now, all of that said, Rick Rude going to have to go at it alone here tonight as he stands in the ring awaiting his opponent, the Dragon's entrance. And Ricky comes rushing out a quick jog to ringside to get things going pretty quickly here. If only the rest of the match worked that way. Stay tuned. As the bell sounds, Rick Rude going to Steamboat's eyes early on, trying to get that upper hand, pitching Ricky out over the top rope. But the dragon skins the cat right back inside. Steamboat returns to the ring to rip into Rude, tossing the ravishing one over the top rope. And now it's Rude taking a nasty bump over the top rope. His back hitting the apron on the way out. I wrote, ouch. Finally, Rude going to return in the ring, do a little flexing before requesting the old test of strength routine. And it seems like the ravishing one getting the best of Steamboat here. Steamer going down to his knees, but the fans, they get behind him with that Steamboat chant. And the dragon powers his way back up to his feet, countering out of that test of strength with a nice little spin move and down into an arm bar. Dragon even managing to sneak in one of his deep arm drags. Unfortunately, that is also followed by another armbar. A very long, boring armbar that seems to go on and on and on and on. Now, they do try to separate the armbar spot with Rick Rude making several escape attempts, but it all leads back to an armbar. And I should note, there's also a, a lady somewhere down there in ringside with a megaphone. I kid you not, a fan in the crowd with a megaphone of her own. So now we have an armbar in the ring and an annoying lady screaming into a megaphone at ringside. Joy. Rude finally and mercifully breaking the armbar with some kicks and punches. Rude then punches Steamboat and punches Steamboat and punches Steamboat some more. In fact, Rick Root throws so many punches, even Vince McMahon can no longer ignore it. Vince on commentary stating, all Rude knows is punching? Yes, guys, Vince actually said that here live on the USA Network. So just as it appears the action about to pick up, Ricky Steamboat going to finally slide through the legs of Rick Root, busting out another deep arm drag. And, oh no, God, please no, the dragon goes right back to the arm bar. This has been rest hold Arama, And the dragon got to work said armbar until Rude this time freeing himself with a stiff elbow to the jaw of the dragon. Rude going to try to flex and pose for the fans, but his arm too hurt to do so. So instead, it's back to the action. Rude catching the dragon with a knee in the kidneys, sending Steamboat tumbling out through the ropes and onto the floor. The ravishing one going to follow him outside, driving Steamboat back first in the apron before slamming him down on the mat outside. And then a suplex from Rude going to bring Steamboat back in from the apron back inside the ring, netting the ravishing one a two count. And hey, we had a six minute armbar, so now it's Rude's turn to put the fans to sleep. Yes, indeed, a seated chin lock 
by Rick Rude on the Dragon, or as Vince calls it, that's a camel clutch, pal. Well, he didn't really hook the arms there, Vince, but at least you're trying. So with Rude sitting on the back of the Dragon Steamboat, going to finally power his way up and execute, wow, an electric chair drop on Ravishing Rick Rude, or as it was called here on commentary, what a maneuver. So Steamboat takes Rude down, going for a big splash running off the ropes, but lands under the knees of the Ravishing One. And I got to ask, does Ricky ever land that splash? You'd think he'd learn after all these years. Rude trying to make the comeback here with a very shitty-looking atomic drop, or as Vince calls it here, a sensational maneuver. And then it's back to the seated chinlock O'Doom from Ravishing Rick Rude. I simply wrote, sigh. So Steamboat, this time going to break the move by sending Rude repeatedly into the corner buckle. As the action finally begins to pick up, they do the old bridge-up spot, the bridge-up into the backslide routine that Steamboat and Flair would make famous a year later. Steamboat going to get two off that backslide as we are now 16 minutes into this matchup and they finally decide to be entertaining. As then from there, Steamer going to start making quick pinfall attempts with roll-ups and jackknives, all of them resulting in near falls until Rude countering with his own small package, but the Dragon reversing that as well for yet another two, but Rude up first and leveling the Dragon, dropping him down with a clothesline but Steamboat going to reverse the suplex to get right back on top. The Dragon then going up top, looking for his finisher, that flying crossbody. And this could do it. But as Steamboat leaps off, Rick Rude pulling referee Dave Hebner in the way so that Steamboat lands on the referee instead. Well, that's a heel thing to do. And with the Dragon now tending to the down referee Dave Hebner, Rude going to take advantage of Steamboat and hoist him up over his shoulder into the body breaker. Now, in the last episode of The Grenade, we saw Rick Rude debut that Rude Awakening neckbreaker, but he's been using the Bodybreaker submission hold since his debut here back in the summer of 87, and Rude has Steamboat up over his shoulder and locks in that submission finisher, and Dave Hebner finally getting to his feet, tapping Rude on the shoulder and calling for the bell. And the announcers can't believe it. Rick Rude in celebration dropping the dragon. Root's theme even beginning to play as he heads backstage and ring announcer Howard Finkel absolutely confused as to the finish of this matchup. Somebody should let the Fink in on this one. Root is nearly all the way up the aisle with this music playing when Howard Finkel announces that ravishing Rick Rude has been disqualified for yanking the referee in front of him. Steamboat landing on top of Dave Hebner. Dave no fool. He knows what Rude did. So your winner. In 17 minutes and 39 seconds, Ricky, the Dragon Steamboat. So Hebner DQ'd Rude for that incident. And what was kind of funny here, if you watch Rick Rude heading backstage, you actually see Pat Patterson rush out to prevent Rude from getting all the way backstage and kind of subtly pointing, signaling for Rude to get back in the ring. And Rude rushes back to ringside and argues with the official for the decision here, but it proves to be futile as Ricky Steamboat named the winner by disqualification. Now, if you guys have ever listened to the Something to Wrestle podcast with Bruce Pritchard, he's talked about this event in the past, and he said they actually used this Royal Rumble event as a lesson on what to do and what not to do on future special events and pay-per-views. The problem here with the Rude Steamboat match was the agent and the wrestlers treated this 
as they would a house show match. So yes, we have an 18-minute match, but the first 16 minutes is all rest holds. And you can't do that on TV. You can't have that kind of downtime. So a lesson learned there. Now, Bruce stated they also learned that maybe they should start filling Howard Finkel in on the finishes of the matches here. So he's not so confused. Doesn't look good for TV. Yeah, so maybe give the Fink a heads up on the finishes, the winners beforehand, so he knows what to announce instead of having to wait for some type of a cue in a confusing situation like this one. As uh, the Fink even seemed to think that Rick Rude might have gotten the win, and so did the sound department. Rick Rude's music playing him out. And all of that caused a bit of a delay here on TV before the announcement could be made. Now, as for the wrestling, as for the finish of this matchup, let's put things into perspective here real quick, guys. Because this was 1988 after all, so you have to remember a couple things. First, we didn't get matches like this on TV. We didn't get a rude steamboat match too often, if at all. So you have to appreciate even getting to see it. Second, the, uh, the shit finish here, the disqualification right out of the gate, was very much common practice for the WWF back in that time. You don't have to look any further than the WrestleMania events. The pay-per-views, they were loaded with disqualifications and countouts. And I'm not defending it. I hated it. But that's just the way it was back then. Vince McMahon trying to protect as many people as he possibly could to keep them in that upper tier. Now, as for the match itself, Root and Steamboat, this was a far cry from the work they're going to do together in WCW only four years later. Man, almost 20 minutes of rest holds and punches here. And while we did get a few good spots there at the end, very slow otherwise. And as I get done watching this matchup for the first time in, in quite a while, I think I can count on one finger, not hand, but one finger, how many bad steamboat matches I've ever seen. And this match, it is that finger. And I'll let you guys guess which finger that is. And while Rick Rude was certainly not at his best here, Steamboat wasn't exactly killing it either. And I'm a fan of both men, but not so much here. Not this week. Solid enough, but very boring. If you want to look for the silver lining, a bad Steamboat match is still better than a bad match in general. And with this finish and this random match being placed here, I had to wonder, was there potential for a feud upcoming between Steamboat and Rude before the Dragon ultimately leaves the company? But no, just seems like it was slated to be a one-off. But really? Who knows? As we roll on, oh, if you thought that last segment was boring, oh, I got something. That's a five-star classic compared to what we have upcoming next here on the Royal Rumble program. It's Dino Bravo slated to set the world bench press record right here, right now, is Mean Gene Oakland up on the stage introducing the next segment. As we are informed, we have a chance to witness history. Oakland up on the platform with Jesse the Body Ventura, who will be acting as spotter here for the Canadian Strongman. And for us dummies out there, Mean Gene asks Jesse Ventura to explain what a spotter is. And rather than me trying to explain it to you, Google defines a spotter as the act of assisting a weightlifter with their lifting exercise by standing behind them, helping them with the struggle portion of their lift, if need be, trying to lock those arms straight out, but most of all, the spotter there to ensure the safety during the execution. And that's Jesse's role here, to stand behind Dino Bravo as he tries to put up that quote-unquote 705-pound plus. As that is the current world bench press record, as stated many times now by Vince McMahon, Dino Bravo going to try to break 
the 705-pound goal by 10 more pounds by the end of the night, looking to put up 715. As Bravo and recently acquired manager Frenchie Martin are then introduced to the fans, and it's lots of French speaking here by Martin that doesn't really help much in getting this thing over. From there, it's the body, Jesse Ventura, explaining why Bravo is putting powder on his hands before the lift. It's to keep his hands from slipping. Thanks, Bod. As Bravo wants total silence, demanding silence from the fans before he lifts. So naturally, the fans, they're gonna boo. And as Bravo lays underneath the bars, looks to put up 415 pounds with ease and repetition here. Bravo warming up with 415. And I put air quotes around 415, guys, and we'll get to that in just a minute. From there, Dino going to do 505 pounds. And again, with rapid presses, as if they weigh next to nothing, or at least a lot less than an ounce. So Dino Bravo does 415, does 505, and then again, up to 555. And yes, once again, success. Dino Bravo having no issue. As things continue to get heavier and heavier, Dino then pushing up 595 pounds. As I write, this is getting a bit redundant and a total waste of TV time at this point. As after Bravo completes the 595, it's 655. And success again. Dino Bravo continuing to add more and more weight to the bar, but geez, Dino, you're going to wear your arms out before you even get to the 715. And at this point, I got to ask you guys, why not just a warm up and then lift the fucking thing already? How about that? Put the 715 up and get the fuck out of here. You got to think this whole entire weightlifting ordeal had to be a Vince McMahon idea. He had to be getting off on this. It's good shit, pal. Speaking of which, finally, after five separate warm-ups, Dino Bravo readies himself to lift the 715. So finally, we can end this thing. As Bravo again lays on his back, gets ready to lift, but then Dino Bravo sits up and walks off the stage? Oh, you've got to be fucking shitting me. Now we're stalling? As Jesse Ventura yelling at the disrespectful crowd, making all that noise, as this segment now pushing nearly 20 minutes, people. 20 fucking minutes of Dino Bravo lifting fake weights. Again, more on that in just a minute. Anywho, finally, Bravo back up on the stage, lays back underneath the bar and attempts to break the bench press record. As Dino begins to lift the 715 pounds, he begins to push the bar up, but starts to struggle as his spotter Jesse Ventura visibly has to help Bravo in pushing up the bar. So Ventura assisting Dino Bravo in doing the lift visibly right here on TV. So we go through all of that. And the payoff here is that Dino Bravo couldn't even do the 715. And the crowd craps all over this segment as Vince McMahon cackles hysterically at his failure. And I just want to be clear here, guys. This was a legit Vince McMahon moment. If you have the original live version of this, Vince McMahon lays into Dino Bravo here, laughing at the expense of the failure of the Canadian strongman. Dino Bravo and company feel that it was a success. He put up the 715 all by himself, but Vince McMahon, he isn't buying a new record was set since it appeared Jesse helped lift that 715. Also factor in some of those plates, they weren't legit iron, Vince. 
Well, this was uh, definitely not what I wanted to see after that rude steamboat matchup that went nearly 20 minutes of rest holds. And one of the least over and worst workers, at least at this stage in his career, Dino Bravo gets nearly 20 minutes to lift weights on TV. And Frenchie Martin, who could speak perfect English, decided French would be best for this segment. And this thing, it just went on far too long. Obviously something Vince probably enjoyed, but nobody else. Just way too much screwing around in between each set of weights, not to mention the actual lifting was tedious and repetitive. 20 minutes. Are you kidding me? This wasn't the kind of heel heat you would want. And I don't know what this was meant to accomplish, but it failed on every level, if you ask me. One of the most tedious segments of the entire era here, of the late 1980s. They could have done this in half the time. Easy. And if you go back and watch this segment, and I'm not encouraging anybody to do so, but if you ever do, you can look and see some of these plates are a different color. They're certainly not all the same. And that's because four of these plates were actually rubber. Two plates on each side. So instead of those plates weighing 50 pounds each, they were actually five-pound rubber plates. So every lift that Dino Bravo did, you had to subtract 180 pounds from the actual lift, meaning the 715 was actually only 535, something Bravo put up fairly easily, as he was, at the time, considered the strongest guy on the roster. So when Dino Bravo struggled and couldn't put up the 535, which we were told was 715 on commentary, Vince McMahon just lays into it, laughing it and mocking it. Dino feeling miserably here, and I'm not sure if it was the nerves or the way the bench press was set up up on a platform or what the deal was here, but Bravo absolutely flopped. And the idea for this segment was to quote-unquote make Dino here as the world's strongest man. He was supposed to put the weights up, believe it or not, without help from Jesse Ventura, but when he struggled, it killed the story dead. Though, it did earn him a, a different type of heat, I do suppose. And I tell you what, without Jesse Ventura there, as bad as this segment was, it could have been far worse because the body at least kept the fans engaged, making comments to them, drawing the heel heat, though it wasn't really so much for Dino. And it's said that Bravo was ribbed for quite a while after this segment by the boys, and I'm sure by Vince McMahon as well. Me? I'm just glad it's over. 17 minutes, guys, to lift some fake weights. Wow. As we return from a break, back to wrestling action. Imagine that here in the ring. It's the ladies' tag team title match. Best two out of three falls. And it's the WWF women's tag team champions, Leilani Kai and Judy Martin, the glamour girls in the ring, along with manager Jimmy Hart. They're set to take on Norio Tateno and Itsuki Yamazaki. The Jumping Bomb Angels. And this is pretty much the only segment, the only match, other than the Hulk Hogan-Andre segment, that touches on any type of a backstory here on this Rumble program, as the Glamour Girls are indeed the women's tag team champions after having quote-unquote won them in Egypt. So the IC title was won in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and now the WWF off to Egypt for this Glamour Girls world title win. Well, it is the World Wrestling Federation, after all. And if you guys recall, the Bomb Angels actually made their WWF debut. We saw them on primetime, but they worked some house shows last summer and then went on to compete at the 1987 Survivor Series 
at the Richfield Coliseum and quickly got over with the fans for their amazing wrestling ability there. That 10-woman tag team match at the series would ultimately come down to two versus two, with the Bomb Angels taking on the Glamour Girls and the Angels eventually eliminating both girls to become the survivors of the Survivor Series. And after having taken the WWF by storm and showing the fans that there are indeed entertaining lady wrestlers out there, the Bomb Angels pegged for a title match here against the Glamour Girls. Again, best two out of three falls as we head to the ring for fall number one. And sadly, the champion's already in the ring for those introductions, so we don't get to hear that cool Glamour Girls theme music. And yes, guys, they did have theme music. Hard to come by, but go check out some of their matches in the house shows around this time. And while the Glamour Girls are already in the ring, the Bomb Angels do, which is dubbed over on the Peacock, I might add. Before the action gets going, the Angels are actually going to stretch out their hamstrings before the bout. Nothing wrong with that. Safety first. And the match is going to start off with the Angels landing stereo dropkicks on the girls, but Kai going to block a second dropkick by Tateno and take control for the champions. Tateno, though, going to show her strength and agility early on by bridging out of a cover and all the way up to her feet. Impressive. As Yamazaki then tags in, delivering a rolling double thrust chop a variation of a pile driver turned into a gut-rich suplex. Then it's Tateno back in the ring working over Judy Martin with a body scissors on the mat. As at this point, Jesse Ventura asking McMahon what the names of the Bomb Angels are. But Vince has no clue, so he decides to call them Pink and Red. I wrote, really? You're the fucking owner of the company and the announcer of your first high-profile USA special? And your preparation is to refer to people you have working for you as the colors they're wearing? Didn't even take the time to learn their names. Vince McMahon. Man, could you hear Marv Albert right now going back in time referring to someone? Hey, it's the beard guy. It's the bald guy. Beard guy passes to the bald guy. 
So needless to say, Vince McMahon sounding absolutely unprofessional here as an analyst. And it kind of shows how much he really gave a shit about the ladies, I'm sad to say. But back to the action, Judy Martin catching a Tateno crossbody, turning it into a big slam as Leilani, Kai, and Yamazaki tagging back in for their teams. Flying double chop and drop kick by Yamazaki on Leilani Kai. Yamazaki then going to lock Kai into the octopus hold. Hell yeah, lock it in the octopus hold on Leilani Kai as Judy Martin comes rushing in to break it up, but somehow winds up hitting her own partner. And that in turn is going to lead to a four-way melee. All four ladies in the ring as the Angels now applying stereo figure four leg locks on the champions until Judy Martin and Tateno eventually sent back to their corners, Yamazaki continuing to work over Leilani Kai's hamstring, Norio locking in a reverse Indian deathlock, turning it over into a bow and arrow stretch, as Leilani Kai now in all sorts of trouble. Once again, her partner, Judy Martin, comes rushing in, tries to pull Kai into the corner, trying to get her partner over to make the tag, but the Angels, they win that tug-of-war battle, yanking Kai back into the middle of the ring, but once again, it is Judy Martin finally able to tag in with Yamazaki. Judy charging a double boot in the corner from Itsuki. But as Yamazaki puts her feet up, Judy grabs hold of her legs, yanking Itsuki out of the corner and turning into a powerbomb of sorts. Judy Martin actually known for her powerbombs, by the way. As Vince McMahon on commentary referring to Judy Martin as the largest lady in the match, pal. Jeez, Vince. Finally, we head into the home stretch of fall number one. Yamazaki going to leapfrog a backdrop attempt here from Judy Martin, but as she runs the ropes, she runs straight into a Leilani Kai knee from the apron. Is Itsuki then going to stumble into Judy Martin, who lands a nice Devil Masami-style suplex? And what that is, kind of, you scoop the person up into a powerbomb, but you take a back bump with it, and they wind up taking a face buster. I've seen it called various things, most notably for, you know, Japan fans, the Joshi fans out there, it's the Devil Masami suplex, but also I've seen it called the Power Bomb Face Buster. Makes sense. I've even seen people describe it as the Alley Oop Face Buster. You can call it what you want. I'll call it effective here as the Glamour Girl is going to use that move to pick up a win, securing the first fall in six minutes and 10 seconds. So Leilani Kai getting it done from the apron and the Glamour Girls up one fall to zero as we head into a commercial break and then back from break time for fall number two as the heels once again try to take advantage of a hurt Yamazaki, since the rules are the winner and loser of the last fall must start the next fall. Yamazaki went down hard before the commercial break. She's got to pick it back up right here. And Itsuki going to show her strength here by keeping a bridge up, bridging up off the mat, no matter how hard she's being hammered. She will not let her shoulders go down a second time. And Leilani Kai going to miss a big splash. And finally, it's Yamazaki making the tag out to Tateno as Norio comes in with a flying clothesline and then goes up to the middle rope to land a second clothesline as well, making the cover and scoring a near fall here on Leilani Kai. But the action continues on to Tenno with a cross body block, netting herself another near fall. And apparently, after commercial break, Vince finally learns the ladies' names. He says their names are Itsuki and Norino. Well, it's, it's actually Norio, Vince, but close enough. As Jesse Ventura says, Norino, that sounds Italian. Probably is, Jess. As Yamazaki tagging back into the matchup, the Bomb Angels double suplex on Leilani Kai. And then all four ladies back in the ring, the Glamour Girls reversing double whips, sending the Angels into one another. But the challengers put on the brakes 
before crashing hard. The Glamour Girls going to charge the Angels from opposite sides of the ring, but the Japanese ladies duck, and the Glamour Girls wind up clotheslining each other. Even still with Judy Martin down, Leilani Kai manages to gain control of Itsuki. By this point in the matchup, Kai going to try an over-the-shoulder backbreaker, kind of that rude bodybreaker. But Yamazaki floating over that bodybreaker right down into a nice-looking sunset flip spot, and the Angels going to get the one, two, three, and this quick fall number two only goes one minute and 52 seconds as the match now tied one fall apiece, the Glamour Girls and the Bomb Angels. As we're off to yet another commercial break, preparing for fall number three, the third and deciding fall here, the Angels going to start off fast, sending Leilani Kai to the ropes for a double knee, and then from there it's a double clothesline also from the challengers. Kai, though, going to cut them off with some boots and tags in Judy Martin. Is Martin going to try to work over Itsuki's leg, but Yamazaki turning it into an enzigiri, which Martin didn't appear too enthused to take, I should mention here. Tateno comes in from there trying a cradle suplex, the old perfect plex, but Judy clearly just dead weights that too in order to prevent it from happening. Judy not wanting to take these bumps. I'm not sure what's going on here. Some miscommunication between the two teams, but Judy Martin is having none of the bomb angels at this point. Straight up blocking a perfect plex there as Martin then escapes a backslide and hits a catapult of her own on Tateno. Then Leilani Kai tagging back in, delivering a beautiful looking double underhook suplex, scores her a near fall on Tateno before Yamazaki finally tagging back in. But she too gets worked over on the heel side of the ring. But Yamazaki comes fighting back, grabbing a waist lock on Kai, driving her down right onto her buttocks twice in a row, kind of like that old school Bubba Bomb. And this move going to give Itsuki a two count here on Kai as the partners again switch out to Tenno in with a diving knee drop off the top rope down onto Judy Martin. And then Norio going to continue to impress from there with a bridging double underhook suplex. It's one, two. Well, that could have been a three if referee Joey Morella wasn't so slow at getting to that cover. Honestly, Morella, you look confused. Maybe because he hadn't seen such quality wrestling in so long. But after that double underhook suplex gets a near fault, Yamazaki back in with a crossbody on Martin as well, gets herself a two count. On the champions, they look like they are in some serious trouble as Yamazaki going to climb the ropes, but misses a diving senton. Damn, would have loved to have seen that connect. Martin going to take advantage and make the cover, but only gets a two count there on Yamazaki as Tateno then tagged back in the ring, nailing another clothesline off the middle rope, leveling Judy there down for the cover. One, two. But Leilani Kai in to break up the cover. And while Joey Morella gets Kai back out of the ring, the Angels land a perfectly timed double dropkick off the top rope. On to Judy Martin. Going to get them the one, two, three. Ending the final fall, five minutes and 50 seconds. And the crowd goes absolutely nuts here, guys, as we have new WWF Women's Tag Team Champions. Winning this thing two falls to one, the Jumping Bomb Angels. The match itself went somewhere around 14 minutes total. And the story of the match here was the ever-crafty heels, the Glamour Girls cheating, a little double-teaming there to get the first fall. Second fall, the Angels with a quick upset, tying things even at one fall apiece. And then here it looked like more shenanigans may be in play, but it's the Glamour Girls who get in their own way, Leilani Kai being forced out of the ring, and the Bomb Angels taking advantage, landing those stereo missile drop kicks off the top rope onto Judy Martin. 
and we have new ladies tag team champions. But I got to admit, if you go back and watch the replay on that third fall shown, that bomb angel hooking Martin's arm and hooking it in a way that her shoulder was blatantly up throughout the entire three count. Jesse Ventura pointing that out right here on commentary. But Vince McMahon, even though visibly seeing that Judy Martin's shoulder far off the canvas, Vince stating that her shoulder blade was still down, pal. Only Vince. And after watching this matchup, the Angels were years ahead of their time here in the United States as these matches actually, they garnered positive response and excitement from the fans, unlike most U.S. ladies' matches of the time. And even with some sloppy spots in the matchup, Judy Martin kind of refusing to take a few moves, this was still better than almost anything else the WWF was putting on free TV at the time. You go, ladies. Now, I want to get into a couple of other pieces of business here in regards to this matchup. First, we're going to take a look at some comments made by Dave Meltzer in the Wrestling Observer following this event. He says the match was good, but not great at all. Tateno doesn't even look like the same girl who came to the United States about 10 weeks ago. Actually, both of the Japanese girls were missing moves and appeared physically to look out of shape. As Dave goes on to state, all the Japanese girls, well, except for Dump Masamoto, of course, are noted for their incredible fitness level. But Tateno looks like she's been training with Buddy Rose as of late. Fucking really, Dave? Wow. You want to talk about a hypocrite and cancel culture and all of that? My God. All you got to do is look back to the 1980s, early to mid-90s Dave Meltzer guys. He's not exactly innocent himself. And comparing Tateno to Buddy Rose? Unbelievable. Anywho, now there's another big story that's made the rounds for years now, guys. And if you believe the stories that are out there, this feud between the Bomb Angels and the Glamour Girls was to have continued through SummerSlam. Well, actually, at least Leilani Kai always states that it was WrestleMania 5, but if you do the math, that's simply not feasible. So it seems more than likely it was SummerSlam 88 she was referencing here, but uh, the two teams, they were to have went over to Japan in the early summer here of 1988 and perhaps perfected a match to bring back for the upcoming pay-per-view, where the Glamour Girls were slated to regain those WWF tag team titles and continue to work with other all-Japan women talent here in the WWF. Now, supposedly, the fabulous Mula, she hated the fact that the Glamour Girls refused her as their manager here. In fact, they pitched the idea of Jimmy Hart instead. But worse yet, Judy Martin Leilani Kai no longer paying Mula that booking fee that she used to collect. You don't take money out of Mula's pocket. Her name fits well. So the story goes that Mula, she also wasn't happy with the All Japan ladies coming in and quote-unquote stealing spots on shows. Since Mula got a cut of the people she trained, she wanted her girls on the shows instead. So, as it has been told, Mula apparently called up the Glamour Girls while they were in Japan in the month of June here in 88 and told them that Vince McMahon had ordered them to win the titles back that night there in the All Japan Ladies promotion. And at that point, the Glamour Girls, they still trusted Mula, so they did what they were told. A title switch took place. The Glamour Girls regained the titles in the month of June from the Jumping Bomb Angels. However, Vince McMahon never did such a thing. And upon hearing of this, Vince and Booker Pat Patterson were reportedly furious and basically killed the ladies' tag team division dead right there on the spot. So we never get a revisit of the Glamour Girls, the Jumping Bomb Angels, or the women's tag team titles, at least not back in this era. 
So if you are to believe the stories, Mula sabotaging the ladies' division since she was no longer being booked herself. You guys can take that story however way you like. But everything I've ever heard about Mula says this story could easily be true. But there you go. History has been made. A world title change right here at the first ever Royal Rumble event on television. Jumping Bomb Angels, the new women's tag team champions, at least for now. Hopefully we see a little more of them before they disappear. But sadly, just as they're ready to explode, ready to take off here, really taking that WWF fan by storm, even though it appears to be the beginning of the beginning, it's uh, sadly the beginning of the end for both teams. As we roll on up next here on the Royal Rumble event, we prepare for the contract signing Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. But first, a quick feud recap of the Hogan-Andre-DiBiase storyline to date. Yes, before the next segment, a flashback video shown of WrestleMania 3. In the early part of the matchup, Hulk Hogan trying to slam the giant, but Andre falling on top. And it did indeed appear that referee Joey Morella may have counted three before Hogan got his shoulder out. Now this enabled Andre to claim that he was the true WWF champion for the past nine months. Now we fast forward to the million dollar man arriving to the World Wrestling Federation and attempting to purchase the WWF title from Hulk Hogan, to which the Hulkster responded, Hell no! Hell no, brother. But this enraged DiBiase, who would then purchase the contract of Andre the Giant, away from one Bobby the Brain Heenan for at least a cool seven figures, it was implied. So DiBiase purchasing Andre's contract with a plan for the Giant to defeat Hulk Hogan for the belt, and then Andre to hand the title over to the Million Dollar Man. And that video package closes with the Giant choking the life out of the Hulkster back in the January 2nd edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. And that brings us back here to today, January 24th, live in the ring here at Cops Coliseum. It's the Hulk Hogan-Andre the Giant contract signing. And this contract signing here is to set up the upcoming Hogan title defense versus Andre in prime time. 8 p.m. Eastern, live on NBC, set to take place Friday night, February 5, the very first WWF main event program. And this was a gigantic coup at the time for professional wrestling in general to get a primetime slot, but more so to appear on a major network station, no less. It had to be close to, I think it was somewhere around 33 years since wrestling left the Dumont Network. And what a huge event it's scheduled to be. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant 2. The rematch from WrestleMania 3 on free TV. And as we head back to the ring, the bell sounds, I guess, to signal the start of this contract signing segment. As we see me, Gene Oakland, WW President Jack Tunney, and the heels all standing in the ring. The heels being Ted DiBiase, Virgil, and of course, Andre the Giant. As the WWF champion out next, Hulk Hogan in interesting attire here, brother. Light blue jeans and cowboy boots. Sleeveless white shirt. But away we go. The festivities begin. As they get Andre to take a seat, Ted DiBiase has some things to say to the Hulkster here. And while Ted cuts an awesome heel promo about taking the title, Andre just stares down Hogan, looking right through him. A, a, a look of death from Andre the Giant here. And for the first time ever, Hulk Hogan, actually, he looks scared, guys. 
Love the facials here from the Hulkster. And as Andre gives that long death stare at the champion, the Giant finally signing the contract. Hogan then signing it as well. The match is now set February 5th, the main event. But in closing, DiBiase orders Andre to give the match a final stamp of approval. And as soon as DiBiase says this, Andre raising to his feet, but the Hulkster right there with him, both men now on their feet. But DiBiase keeps verbally laying into the champion, which causes Hogan to finally have enough. The Hulkster lunging over the table, reaching after DiBiase, but Andre going to intercept, grabbing Hogan and driving him face first down into the table before flipping said table over on top of the Hulkster's face as the heels all leave the ring. The Hulkster laying there on the mat with a table on his head. And I, for one, I love it. And what an awesome sight to end this segment. And I just want to put my two cents in here, my final thoughts on this segment here, because first we get the pre-segment video, which wasn't overdone or prolonged. It didn't go on forever. It touched on the main points, flowed very quickly. And the actual contract segment was fine as well. And I typically groan at contract segments because of what's to come in the years to come. But it didn't drag on like that Dino Bravo segment, that's for sure. But let's talk about Andre's mannerisms here. Without even speaking one word, Andre was awesome in this role here tonight. He did more just staring at Hulk Hogan than most do cutting a 20-minute promo today. And then you have to look at the million-dollar man. Ted DiBiase was such an awesome heel here, a great evil promo to boot. And of course, naturally, Hulk Hogan playing the part fine, going so far as to show potential fear in his eyes for the first time ever. Hulk Hogan may indeed fear stepping in the ring with Andre the Giant one more time. And I'll say this, Hogan knew how to sell something if it meant there was money to be made, dude. And he had no problem acting worried to make this upcoming match even more intriguing, showing doubt in the champion's mind. And the final spot with Andre attacking Hogan was, was fresh for the time because contract signings, they hadn't been done to death yet in 1988. And it was just a really good cherry on the Sunday to give the heels even more heat heading into the main event, flipping that table over on the Hulkster's head. And it made the champion look vulnerable. And I know this show, this event, was named after a particular match, but make no mistake, this was the main event, at least as far as Vince McMahon was concerned. So another piece of a much larger puzzle in this masterpiece of storytelling leading into WrestleMania 4. And guys, just wait till we get to the next stop in this storyline at the main event. February 5! And as we come back from our next break, here we go! It's the first ever televised 20-man over-the-top rope Royal Rumble. You guys know the rules. 20 men here, not 30. They draw numbers at random. Going to enter in that order. We're going to start off with numbers 1 and number 2. Every two minutes thereafter, another man going to hit the ring. It's going to be number 3 four, five, and so on until all 20 men have entered. The only way to be eliminated, thrown over the top rope and out onto the floor until one man left remaining in the ring going to be deemed the winner of the Royal Rumble. And the names involved here, tag teams like the Hart Foundation, Jim Neidhart, Brett the Hitman Hart, Killer Bees, Jumpin' Jim Brunzel and B. Brian Blair, the Bolsheviks, Nikolai Volkov and Boris Zukov, plus many other stars including The Rock, Don Morocco, Natural Butch Reed, The King, Harley Race, Dino Bravo going to be back out here, plus The Ultimate Warrior, Outlaw Ron Bass, The One Man Gang, Hillbilly Jim, 
Jake the Snake Roberts, his brother, Sam Houston, Dangerous Danny Davis, Ho, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the Junkyard Dog, and Strike Force member Tito Santana. You may be asking, based on the talent pool here, hey Ray, where is everybody? Noticeably absent from this entire card? Right away, we know. Where's the Macho Man Randy Savage, the Intercontinental Champion Honky Talk Man? We were even told Demolition originally promoted to be part of this show to take on the Killer Bees. And that's not happening. So where's Axe and Smash? And Brutus Beefcake even missing from this lineup, just to name a few. Well, guys, when this was originally booked, it wasn't meant to be a USA special, just another house show up here in Hamilton, Ontario. So we only get half the roster, meaning the other half in another town. A little further east, Halifax, Nova Scotia at the Forum on January 24th as well, because you see, these shows were booked as house shows originally, so the roster divided. And in case you guys are wondering what took place over there in Halifax, now we ran that down on the house show results episode of The Grenade, but we're going to look at it again real quick right here. Ladies champion Sensational Sherry over Rock and Robin also on the card. Coco Beware defeating Sika, the Wild Samoan. The Rujos over the Conquistadors. Demolition splitting up into singles competition here. It's Demolition Axe over Buddy Lane, Canadian Buddy Lane, actually subbing there for the departed Billy Jack Haynes, no longer with the company. Also, Demolition Smash downing Ken Patera. So the demos aren't even here in Hamilton, sad to say. Also on that card, Brutus the Barber Beefcake over former partner Greg the Hammer Valentine. And in the main event, it's Intercontinental Champion Hockey Talk Man defeating Macho Man Randy Savage on a disqualification. So none of those names here in Hamilton. Just in case anybody was wondering, I know I was as a kid. And now before we get to the match, let's just talk a little bit about substitutions, shall we? And we don't have to go any further than a little documentary the WWE did on Pat Patterson as they just happened to flip through one of his old booking binders. They flipped past this specific date in 1988, the Royal Rumble event. And we saw some of Pat's original notes here for this show. How lucky can we be? as we catch a glimpse of the original 20 men pegged for this matchup. And a few things, they get changed up here. Now, we've heard the promotion for weeks now on primetime of Bam Bam Bigelow scheduled to be part of this Royal Rumble event. But if you guys were listening to the News and House Show episode of January 88 here on The Grenade, you know Bigelow suffering a knee injury at this point in time. He tried to work through it for the first several weeks of January, but he takes a week off right around this time and he has to miss the big event. So in Bammer's place, right there in Pat Patterson's notes, and right here before our eyes, we're going to learn that Tito Santana, co-holder of the WWF Tag Team Championships with Strikeforce, Santana going to play the replacement here for Bam Bam Bigelow, who may have been the favorite to win this thing, you have to think, before going down with that bum knee. Now we also see here in Patterson's notes that the Iron Sheik was originally pegged to return During this Royal Rumble matchup, he was originally going to replace the spot of one dangerous Danny Davis here, but Sheiky Baby winds up debuting shortly after this card in Hamilton. Not even sure if he's legally allowed to enter the country of Canada at this point, but the Iron Sheik not a part of this event, so Danny Davis will remain a part of the Royal Rumble matchup. Now, there's also a note that that listed Iron Mike Sharp at the bottom of the list of participants here. And I have to assume Sharp, uh, being from Hamilton, Ontario, was indeed in the building on this night as uh, potentially maybe a substitute, an alternate of sorts here. 
Of course, that doesn't come into play, but it was kind of interesting to see Mike Sharp was on deck for this match. I think Mike Sharp was one of the original names listed for the WrestleMania 2 Battle Royal as well. Then he kind of gets pushed out of that. So he's come oh so close on a few occasions as Mike Sharp from making it into one of the big events, but it just wasn't meant to be here. Now, in that dry run rumble we talked about in St. Louis, I think it was something like only 10 to 12 men involved there. And we've upped that here to 20 for television, the typical amount of wrestlers involved in a battle royal. At this point, both Vince and Jesse Ventura, as well as the Fink, go over the rules of the matchup. Of course, the body and Vince doing it for the fans at home, the Fink doing it for the fans in attendance there. As once again, they go through the drawing of the numbers, the two-minute intervals, the over-the-top rope eliminations, etc., etc. It's time to rumble! It's time for the Royal Rumble! And it all starts off with number one and number two, who are already waiting in the ring. Now, they'd actually learn from that and build the drama in 1989. Can you guys imagine if Axe and Smash were already standing in the ring to start the match instead of that back-to-back entrance? Yeah. Anywho, away we go. Number one is going to be Brett the Hitman Hart from the Hart Foundation. And number two, replacing Bam Bam Bigelow, it is the co-holder of the tag team titles, Tito Santana. I have no idea where Rick Martell is tonight, but he's not part of the Rumble match, which is unfortunate. But straight away, Jesse Ventura mentioning the irony of this since both teams, the Hart Foundation and the Strike Force, are currently feuding over the WWF tag team titles. Yeah, almost like this was rigged, huh, Jesse? So probably the best two wrestlers in the matchup draw the numbers one and two, so I'm here for that. And those two men going to go at it for the first two minutes until number three enters the ring, and it's the natural Butch Reed. And immediately it becomes two-on-one all the way. The heels ganging up on the Strike Force member. Tito, though, managing to hang in there until the end of his period. Reed accidentally nailing the hitman, and Tito begins fighting off both men. Just as number four hits the ring, it's Jim the Anvil Neidhart. So both members of the Hart Foundation drawing early numbers. Tito Santana in all sorts of trouble now as it is three on one. And the heels literally triple teaming Tito for the entire two minutes. The hearts never even bother to turn on the natural Butch Reed. And all three heels, they have Tito teetering. As number five comes out, it's Jake the Snake Roberts hits the ring and Jake immediately dumping the natural out from behind. Butch Reed already gone for the contest. And now the odds a little more fair, two on two. It's Jake and Tito taking on the Hart Foundation as the hitman, nailing Santana with a pile driver, and we wind down to the next participant, which is the King. Harley Race in at number six, another heel to keep things in that heel's favor. Sort of a, a War Games vibe there, keeping the heels on top here in the matchup as Race is all over Jake Roberts for this two-minute period, and the Anvil with an impressive standing dropkick on Santana during this point in the match as well. As number seven in is jumping Jim Brunzel from the Killer Bees and Sam Houston in at number eight. And did I mention how insane this crowd is? Absolutely loud. And after those first two segments, amazing they're still in this thing. I mean, they are crazy loud here, even for Sam Houston's entrance. As I make note, the brothers Houston and Jake Roberts walk right past each other in the ring and don't even acknowledge one another. Aw, poor Sam. As Bret Hart finally eliminating Tito Santana and all of this craziness. So one of the two men that started this matchup 
eliminated by the other. And now the hitman alone, the Iron Man in the contest, as in comes Dangerous Danny Davis at number nine, and he and Sam Houston going at it right away, and their jobber-esque feud continues on here. Meanwhile, Jake the Snake Roberts pounding away on Harley Race in a fun seesaw spot. As we reach the halfway mark, number 10 is Boris Zukov. And I can't help but notice how eerily similar this roster here in the Rumble, this list of men, look like the WrestleMania 4 Battle Royal. Seriously, guys, everyone in here right now, except for Jake, are in the WrestleMania 4 Battle Royal. As the action goes on, number 11 is apparently The Rock, Don Morocco, but confusion ensues. As Morocco makes his way out, Nikolai Volkov runs down three feet behind him. Morocco and Volkov then argue over who's going in next. Now, if I was The Rock, I would have stepped aside. Hey, you go first, Nikolai. Of course, Volkov probably wanting to help his partner Zukov here, but no, it is indeed The Rock drawing the number 11, and he will go in next. As Nikolai Volkov, apparently he can't count. He's confused, or maybe he truly does just want to help out partner Boris here. No matter the difference, Morocco in at number 11, and Volkov forced to stand at ringside and wait for his turn. Kind of wonder why they never revisited this confusion in later years here at the Rumble. But unfortunately, that's all it would take. The luck of the draw, Volkov forced to stand at ringside and watch as Jake the Snake Roberts and jumping Jim Brunzel eliminate partner Boris Zukov from the match. Well, he didn't last long. As the match goes on, Jim Brunzel landing his patented dropkick on the hitman Bret Hart as we count down to number 12, who, no surprise, is Nikolai Volkov. But remember, partner Boris, now gone from the contest. And after Nikolai enters at 12, it's Don Morocco eliminating the king, Harley Race, shortly thereafter. And while on commentary, Vince McMahon arguing with Jesse Ventura about using all those double negatives, it's the referees arguing with Harley Race to leave ringside. Not a good night for the Heenan clan thus far, as in at number 13, Ho! Hacksaw Jim Duggan making his way down to the ring and wouldn't you know it, crossing paths with the eliminated Harley Race at ringside. And if you recall, the two have had that feud going on, so Duggan shoving Race out of his way, but Harley with a cheap shot on Hacksaw in return. Duggan then going to chase Race halfway up the aisle, but returning to the ring to get into the action. So Harley Race away from ringside. Jim Duggan now in the ring is out next at number 14. It's the outlaw Ron Bass hitting the ring, and Nikolai Volkov going to pick up Jim Brunzel and slam him out over the top rope and onto the outside floor. So one half of the Killer Bees gone, but it's number 15, B. Brian Blair, the other half of the Killer Bees, much like Volkov just missed being in the ring with his partner. So Brian Blair in at 15, three quarters of the way through this thing, and we've got 10 men in the ring at this point. So only a quarter of the field eliminated as number 15 is in there. And out next is number 16 from Mudlick, Kentucky. It's Hillbilly Jim. We built this matchup, 11 men in the ring now. And I, I got it, it. It is crazy how many of these guys work that WrestleMania 4 Battle Royal. Unbelievable. As Hillbilly Jim hits the ring, almost immediately eliminating Jim Neidhart. Then from there, it's number 17. Dino Bravo. So this guy somehow gets two segments on the show. Boy, Vince loved him some Dino. As the action goes on, we see the outlaw Ron Best hoisting Sam Houston up onto his shoulders in an electric chair drop type position, but then dumps him out over the top rope and down onto the floor. Damn, what a spot. Sam Houston taking a nasty spill for his elimination is out next at number 18. It's the ultimate warrior. 
and Warrior going right after the outlaw. Poor Ron Bass. As number one, the hit band Bret Hart is finally eliminated by the Rock Don Morocco, the hitman going 25 minutes plus in the ring. And even though the hitman gets credit as the Iron Man in this first Royal Rumble match, lasting the longest of anyone in this contest, the story here is actually the producers of the match, they had finally realized by this point in the contest that, holy shit, we never gave Bretton out. Bret Hart was in the ring waiting to hear when he was supposed to be eliminated. And by who? And with Bret still in there after 25 minutes of the matchup, 18 men have entered at this point. They make the revelation backstage, they send word to the ring, and the hitman finally eliminated here by Don Morocco. Though let's be real, guys. If you're going to make this mistake, Bret Hart was the perfect participant to do it with. And then next in at number 19, it's the one-man gang. And gang, remember, the winner of the St. Louis Mini Royal Rumble back in the fall. And while they don't acknowledge it here on TV, at least he has experience in these matches. And the gang hits the ring quickly, eliminating B. Brian Blair, followed by Jake the Snake Roberts as well. So the gang absolutely one of the favorites to win it now after eliminating the Snake Man for the contest. And then in at number 20, the final number. It's the Junkyard Dog. So JYD, the final participant here in the Royal Rumble matchup. And we've got 10 men left. That is half the field still in this thing. Potential winners. And some big names in there. Jim Duggan, the one-man gang, Don Morocco, the ultimate warrior, really bursting onto the scene as of late. But of course, you know what that means. Ten men in the ring. Nobody left to enter. So it's time for rapid eliminations. Coming next here, is Jim Duggan going to backdrop Nikolai Volkov out to the floor? Then from there, it's the one-man gang, dumping Hillbilly Jim. Back to Hacksaw again with a three-point stance and clothesline. Going to send dangerous Danny Davis right over the top rope and right out of there. From there, Dino Bravo and the gang going to work together to eliminate the Ultimate Warrior. Thanks for coming, UW. And then in a surprising fashion, Outlaw Ron Bass tossing out the Junkyard Dog, who only lasted maybe two or so minutes at this encounter. Then from there, it's the Rock Don Morocco eliminating the Outlaw with a shitty clothesline. We'll just call it like it is. And just like that, we've got our final four in the contest. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, The Rock Don Morocco, The One Man Gang, and Dino Bravo. And while the gang crushes Jim Duggan in the corner with an avalanche, Morocco tries to fight off the gang and Dino by himself. Morocco landing a dropkick on the gang, but Frenchie Martin then jumping up onto the apron. Dino Bravo's manager, Frenchie, running distraction, but Morocco going to dropkick Frenchie off the apron as well. But the distraction plays well as Bravo and the gang use the distraction to their advantage, and they eliminate Don Morocco. And that's going to leave Jim Duggan all alone versus two. And yes, guys, I know it's supposed to be every man for himself, but we just don't really see that here in this matchup. As the heel's going to double-team Hacksaw, Bravo holding Jim, but Duggan moving out of the way, gang accidentally closing Dino Bravo, sending him over the top rope and out of the ring, leaving it now down to two. Jim Duggan and the gang, as Hacksaw rocks the big gang with a series of punches. Gang, though, going to take over, choking Hacksaw up against the ropes. The one-man gang then backing up, charging at Duggan, looking for that elimination. But Duggan going to drop down, pulling the top rope down, and the gang rushes through, goes falling over the top rope and out of the ring onto the floor. The one-man gang eliminated, and your winner 
in 33 minutes and 25 seconds, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And Duggan, for all intents and purposes, the winner of the quote-unquote first-ever Royal Rumble match. And with this match going 33 minutes and 25 seconds, anybody who can do basic math can see that the quote-unquote two-minute intervals weren't close to legit in this first outing. With TV time remaining, they began speeding up the intervals using what they call Titan time in the second half of the matchup. So the match was just shy of 34 minutes total. Yet mathematically, the Junkyard Dog shouldn't have even come out until the 36-minute mark which would have made the match go somewhere around 40, 41 minutes in time. And I thought it was great that, th that we got the entire match here, commercial-free. That was a huge plus for a TV program at the time. Uh, for their first crack at the Rumble match as a broadcast event, I thought it was fine. But I gotta go back and say this again. I do think it's absolutely crazy that more than half of the field here would meet again at the WrestleMania 4 Battle Royal. Just insane how many of those guys are in this Royal Rumble matchup. The match, it was a little light on star power. I'll give, you, I'll give you that, but it was still fun. Bret Hart becomes the first Rumble Iron Man after lasting more than 25 minutes. The gang gets the first nod as the monster of the match after tossing out a half a dozen guys, which with 20 men, that boils down to nearly a third of the field. So a big night for the one-man gang, and of course the last man eliminated as well. Now, my only real gripe here, there was very little heel versus heel and practically no face-versus-face face altercations, but we know that will change the Rumble match as they will continue to perfect it the following year. But to have a match like this on basic cable television at this time was just insane to think about. A true treat from the typical squash matches that we were accustomed to. And using this basically as a prototype of the match, I can't really find many complaints here outside of that. The crowd being explosive here really helped the matter even further. They were really into this thing. They were really having fun. So the first ever Royal Rumble here that we've ever seen is now in the books. Hacksaw Jim Duggan, the winner. As we go off next to a special interview up on the platform with Craig DeGeorge standing by with the WWF champion Hulk Hogan, who has changed shirts here from that white sleeveless now to a Hulkamania t-shirt. As we get a quick flashback to earlier tonight when Andre the Giant attacked the champion, dumping the table over on his head as an angry Hulkster here returns in new clothes, but quickly rips the shirt off. So what's the point, brother? Hogan says the attack from earlier from Andre the Giant, it only added fuel to the fire because the Hulkamaniacs, they don't have a price, brother. Hogan hard sells the February 5 main event special on NBC with the champion stating that Andre can't beat him because he has to beat all of the Hulkamaniacs to get it done. And screw you, Moneybags, the Hulkster going to retain the title at the main event. We'll have to wait and see about that, as we have one more matchup here at the event here, the Royal Rumble. Two out of three falls once again, another tag team contest. Going to see the Islanders of Haku and Tama. Boy, it would have been a perfect time to stick them in the ring here against the British Bulldogs, wouldn't it have? Nope, but instead it's the Islanders battling the Young Stallions of Jimmy Powers and Paul Roma. And I'm sure everyone out there wants to know, why is this match on last, Ray? Well, it's pretty simple, actually, guys. They wanted to make sure they had plenty of time to get in the Hulk Hogan-Andre contract signing, and even more so to make sure they had the time to fit in the Royal Rumble match. Remember, they even rushed that a little bit with Titan time. So they put this match on last because it was the easiest to drop from the program, if need be, or certainly cut for time. So the WWF covering their ass here, working live here on the USA Network, 
making sure to get that Royal Rumble match in. As we head off to the ring for fall number one here between the Islanders and the Stallions, remember Bobby Heenan away in Barbados, so the Islanders going to work it alone. For some reason, Vince McMahon bringing up the earlier Dino Bravo segment here during this matchup. That's how interested and invested he is in this tag team contest. Vince referring to the Bravo segment as dull and boring, pal, said it made him want to go to sleep. No kidding. McMahon must have been getting some real-time feedback on that one as the Islanders are back here after a very brief suspension by President Jack Tunney for allegedly dog-napping Matilda. Uh, We have learned that Matilda has been returned since that time, so the Islanders back in the ring as Powers and Tama are the men elected to start this match out. Jimmy Powers getting the better of Tama early on, forcing Tama to bail out of the ring. But Tama going to return, trying for a cheap shot kick here, but Powers catches Tama's foot, landing an atomic drop, and the young stallion's going to take control. That is until Jimmy Powers missing a corner charge, Haku finally tagging in to the matchup. But Powers able to make it to his corner, Paul Roma also in, as he begins to work over the arm of Haku. It's Roma and Haku in the ring. They do a nasty, scary hip toss spot. Haku trying to, it looks like a reverse a hip toss and almost breaking Roma's neck. I wrote, shit, that was scary. But everybody okay? And the action continues on. Haku and Roma running at each other simultaneously with crossbodies colliding in the middle of the air. And somehow it's Paul Roma landing on top. Really good spot there. These two guys really smacked each other hard. Roma landing on top in that double crossbody spot there on top of Haku. Going to give himself a two count. And then it's time to tag back in Jimmy Powers and Tama. And the Islanders going to take over control, beating down on Powers, keeping him in their corner until Powers and Haku have the same thing in mind. Double clothesline on one another. Down go both men as Jimmy Powers finally over, managing to make the hot tag to partner Paul Roma. As Roma comes in, a house of fire here. Jumping clothesline and a nice drop kick on Tama. Then from there, a big backdrop since Tama way up into the sky as Haku even knocked off the apron here. Paul Roma really on the offense. But he gets a little sloppy here, missing a drop kick that he was supposed to connect with, but Tama sells it anyway like a champ. Tama taking the bump there, but kicks out at one, which I don't blame him. Again, the drop kick never even connected, barely. And with Roma on fire, Haku on the outside. Remember, he got knocked off that apron. Haku pulling that top rope down from the outside as Tama flings Paul Roma over the top rope, hard out onto the floor. It appears Paul Roma may have twisted his knee, injured his knee on that landing. Paul Roma unable to make it back in the ring, and the young stallions will be countered out in fall number one here after that nasty spill to the floor. The first fall going to go seven minutes and 50 seconds as the Islanders now up one to nothing. And as the young stallions are aided, assisted backstage to check on Paul Roma's knee in between the falls, we get another special interview up on the platform. Craig DeGeorge standing by this time with Andre the Giant and the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. So with Paul Roma conveniently being looked at backstage, we just happen to have time for yet another interview here. And this time DeGeorge speaking with the heels about that upcoming match on February the 5th. DiBiase says on February 5th, It won't be an oak table covering Hulk Hogan, but rather Andre the Giant. As Andre talks about giant mania and says that he is still undefeated. DiBiase confident in Andre defeating the Hulkster at the main event and then surrendering the championship to the million dollar man. Because hey guys, everybody's got a price. 
Big storyline there as we continue to count down the days less than two weeks away from the main event. And after we come out of a commercial break back in the ring, we see that the Young Stallions are apparently returning to ringside to continue this matchup. Fall number two, Jimmy Powers aiding a limping Paul Roma back to the ring, hobbling back up onto the apron. And remember, guys, like earlier, the loser and winner of the last fall must start the next fall. So that means the injured Paul Roma must start fall number two. And wouldn't you know it, the heel Islanders immediately taking advantage of that, attacking Roma's poor leg, and Paul even making a huge mistake here, putting up his knees on a Thomas splash, only further injuring his own knee as well. Stupid. But Roma does manage to crawl over and make the hob tag out to partner Jimmy Powers, and Powers in with a high backdrop on Haku, going to get himself a two count there, and Jimmy Powers going to continue on the offense here on Haku. Lands a nice vertical suplex, getting another two count. But the Islanders going to take over on poor Jim Boy as Thomas shouts, Come on, sucker! Which even Vince McMahon questions on commentary. As Thomas apparently from the city of Compton in Samoa. But the Islanders once again in control. They dominated partner Paul Roma, and now it's Jimmy Powers beaten down like a jobber. They just wear Powers out here. Double headbutt by the Islanders. Haku even landing a backbreaker. Tama coming back in with that flying back elbow smash. The heels have everything well in hand until Haku misses a somersault senton. Man, Haku was great back when he was lean. The things he could do, just deadly. Not that he was ever not deadly. And we have Paul Roma on the apron selling the knee and Jimmy Powers down and out in the middle of the ring selling his back now. As Jesse Ventura wisely points out on commentary, even if Powers can make the tag, what is Paul Roma going to do on one leg? Good point, Jess. Meanwhile, during the matchup, Vince McMahon again correcting Jesse Ventura on Tama's name. It's Tama, not Toma. Uh, Vince states that Toma actually means something very unsavory, unspeakable. And I wrote, now I got to look this up. And in Samoan, I learned that Toma simply means tomato. Now, in other languages, it means to take or to conquer. So let's just go with that. As the action continues on here, we get a weird spot where Jimmy Powers he actually ducks a drop kick, but immediately falls down anyway. Nevertheless, Powers finally able to tag in partner Paul Roma as Roma comes in limping, but punching away. Haku, however, he knows where the weak link is here in Roma, that being his leg, kicking Paul's leg out of his leg. Haku going to work over that leg, taking Roma down to the mat, and then holding him in place is Tama going to dive off the top rope with the flying splash. And then Haku grabbing that bad leg and turning it over, into a half crab, scoring the submission win, 7 minutes and 34 seconds. So between the two falls, we get about 15 minutes here from the Islanders as they take the win in two straight falls over the Young Stallions. Now, the match itself can't really be classified as much more than filler, but it was solid. They, they needed something to follow the Rumble match so that they could squeeze in the Hogan and Andre interviews. I get that, to continue that main event hype. But at the same time, they didn't actually necessarily need to worry about how long this final match was going to go. Because let's face it, based on the offense here, this was not much more than a very stretched out squash match. But at least it told a story with Roma's knee injury. And of course, the Young Stallions, they had flashes of good stuff here, but it wasn't much. Meanwhile, the Islanders looked solid, really starting to pick up momentum for that British Bulldogs feud. It felt like coming out of 87, the Islanders' wheels begin to spin in place. The Strikeforce feud was winding down. 
And even though I'm not a gigantic fan of the dog napping angle to get a feud going, I am very much intrigued in seeing the Bulldogs and the Islanders go at it. And I'll go back and say this again. I pointed it out during the matchup, but Haku was absolutely awesome in the ring when he was trimmed down, like right here at the beginning of 88, and still a killer in real life, even when he bulked up later on. So even though it wasn't anything special of a match, it was solid enough for TV. Now, needless to say, the Islanders winning two straight falls, and the Stallions not even getting a quote-unquote fluke pin to even things out first, that should tell you that whatever push they were getting at Survivor Series, the Stallions push likely already over. But that's going to wrap it up. The show concludes the Royal Rumble goes off the air as Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura again recap tonight's event and then hard sell the main event coming February 5, just 12 days time, pal, and just a couple weeks away here on the grenade as well. Now, let me leave you guys with some closing thoughts here on this first ever Royal Rumble event. In essence, this was a throwaway show for Vince McMahon, nothing more than a nice placeholder event to take buys away from Jim Crockett's Bunkhouse Stampede pay-per-view, all the while promoting his upcoming NBC special that will lead to WrestleMania 4. Now, the card, it wasn't even all hands on deck. We talked about it. No macho man, no honky tonk, no demolition. That whole troop over in Nova Scotia on this date. And while the Rumble match was the namesake main event here for the show, the focus far more on Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, the contract signing, the promos that followed it, the world championship matchup, Hogan-Andre 2, the first time one-on-one since WrestleMania 3. Now, as a pay-per-view, had this been a pay-per-view, this would have seriously been lacking the, the star power. Though I, I, I do imagine had it been a pay-per-view, the, the card would have been different. Everybody would have been here. It would have been all hands on deck. But as a TV special, I thought it was fine for what it was. As a special event, you have the throwaway Islanders match, which was solid, but essentially, again, just an extended squash. Rude and Steamboat was there, but to quote Gorilla, it left a lot to be desired. The Bravo segment went way too long. Very repetitive. Oh, yeah. And he failed the attempt, by the way. But on the other side, you had the new concept, the Royal Rumble match, which was absolutely a fun time. The ladies match, which is pretty good as well. And the Hogan-Andre stuff, which was used to build to the important main event show, which in turn builds to WrestleMania 4. So it's a mixed bag show here. But for the era, the good overweighs the bad, in my opinion. And really, the only unbearable segment was Dino Bravo. Now, before we close out this edition of The Grenade, just let's talk briefly about the ratings of the Royal Rumble here. Royal Rumble doing an 8.2 rating and a 12 share. It was watched in over 3.2 million homes, the highest for any cable wrestling program to that point. So let's put that into perspective for a moment. The WWE would have to be more than a year deep in the Attitude Era before any Monday Night Raw could ever come close to touching this type of rating. An 8.2, that means more than 8% of American households with cable TV were tuning in to see the WWF's latest creation, the Royal Rumble. And if you think that was a pretty big deal, even the replay that replaces primetime wrestling this week, the replay going to do a 4.8 rating. Primetime usually does a 2.9. So everybody tuning in to see this Royal Rumble. So I guess Vince should listen to Patterson more often. And that, my friends, is the rest of the story. The first Royal Rumble in the books. They'd learn from their mistakes 
and return with the event featuring 30 men on pay-per-view in 1989. I'll write another big piece of the puzzle out of the way here. The very first USA special, the Royal Rumble 1988, now in the books as we look forward to returning next time. Two more weeks of WWF TV closing out the month of January, and then it's off to the February 5th main event featuring the Macho Man Randy Savage challenging Intercontinental Champion Hockey Talk Man, and of course, the epic matchup involving WWF Champion Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. Can the eighth wonder of the world take the title from the champion? And will he indeed hand it over to the Million Dollar Man? We won't have to wait long to find out. And of course, all of this taking us in to WrestleMania 4. So stay tuned, guys. It's going to be a fun ride each and every week here in the year of 1988 on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. And as we close out the show this week, just want to remind everybody again, check out all the great podcasts over at WrestleCopia.com. Follow me on X at Wrestling Grenade. Also follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Subscribe, YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, most importantly, that $5 all access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. All sorts of gifts for just $5. I can really use the support and the money to help finance the WrestleCopia podcast network, pay the software bills, upgrade the hardware as the podcast network continues to grow. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. But that's okay. We will be back soon. So I want to wish everybody once again, happy holidays to all, a very Merry Christmas, a very happy and safe holiday season to everyone. Be careful. Use Uber, use Lyft if you're out there drinking, guys. And if you're short on cash, don't worry about the gifts. Instead, give the gift of love and kindness. But that's going to wrap it up here this week. And you guys know the drill by now. This is Ray Russell saying from pillar to post and coast to coast. You pull the pin and I'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Be there!